Well, we are going to uh, take a look this evening at some of the things that have happened, dramatic things that have happened over the last hundred years in missions. And my focus is going to be looking at a model for how we should respond to that from Scripture. Uh, what I'll be talking about with some of the massive changes around the world tonight, I'm just going to open the door, give you a quick look, and then close the door. Uh, tomorrow evening, we're going to go into great detail. I'm going to have a PowerPoint. We're going to have maps and statistics and pictures and charts. And we're going to look at some of that in even greater detail. Uh, I hope it will be an encouragement to you and also a challenge for prayer and for focus on the parts of the world that still uh, are in the greatest need of the gospel. Tonight, just a brief look at that. But before we do that, let's bow in prayer and ask the Lord to teach us, encourage us, and show us the direction He wants us to go. Father, we are encouraged this, this evening as we have seen what's happened in southern Venezuela as tribal peoples uh, who uh, in the past have worshipped the spirit world and been consumed by uh, trying to please spirits uh, have now come to worship the Lord of the spirit world, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has defeated Satan on the cross. And uh, for many of these peoples, Lord, a life of fear and a domination by a spirit world has been replaced by a surrender to the Lordship of Jesus. We thank you for that. We thank you, Father, for Phyllis carrying the light in Haiti. We thank you for the way she has projected the righteousness and justice of the coming kingdom of Jesus here and now to the children, to the, the hurting people of Haiti. And again, Lord, we pray, we lift up and pray that you might bring justice in the matter of this container and allow it to be released again. And we pray that the justice that Jesus will enact at one time in the future, that we'll see a glimpse of that here and now. And Father, as we look tonight at the exciting changes you have brought into the world, as we get a glimpse of that, may you encourage us and may you show us how you want us to respond, that we might uh, join in and be partners with you and the work of your Spirit around the world. And we pray, Father, that our encouragement would also work itself out in maybe some different ways of doing missions for each of us and as a church in the future. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to come with me this evening to two international congresses, conferences on world mission. We want to start off, let's see, from your perspective, it would be over here, in Edinburgh, Scotland. And the year is 1910, 101 years ago. As we drop into this conference on mission, we are entering the first international, interdenominational gathering of mission leaders and missionaries to talk about finishing the task of missions around the world. There are 1,200 leaders and active participants in world mission. They have come to celebrate what has happened over the hundred years previous to this, the hundred years of the 19th century, the 1800s when they have seen tremendous advances in the gospel. Since the time of William Carey, they have seen missionaries go out. And now the church rings the continents of Africa and Asia. It had only begun to penetrate to the interior of those continents. But the gospel, the church, was now planted around the edges of those continents. Those missionaries, those 1,200, represent some 40,000 missionaries who had been sent out around the world carrying the gospel. And though they had seen great advances, there were still areas that needed to be penetrated with the gospel, the interior of Africa and Asia. And though Latin America was nominally Christian, uh, it was still, the gospel had still been yet to penetrate into the hearts of most people there. If you had looked in that conference, 
you would have seen a gathering that looked very, very much, well, everybody looked alike. Almost everybody in that conference was white, of European descent, and male. Only 17 who were there represented the newer churches of Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Fast forward. Now we are in Cape Town, South Africa, and the year is 2010. We are there for the third Lausanne Congress on World Evangelization. A gathering which, if we walked into it, you would be greeted by a tremendous variety of peoples from all around the world. The peoples who are there represent hundreds of people groups and languages. They come from more nations than are in the United Nations. You see, in this hundred years, the Gospel has transitioned from being sent out largely from Europe, North America, to the rest of the world, to a phenomenon where now the church is in every country of the world and has penetrated hundreds and hundreds of people groups. Where the Gospel was least in 1910, the church is now largest in 2010. And where the prospects were for growth were greatest, however, the results have been, in some cases, the most grim because the gospel has gone out and spread tremendously, but the results still have yet to be penetrated in other places around the world. The gospel is no longer the West to the rest because the church in the rest is now larger than the church in the West. Take Africa, for example. Today, in sub-Saharan Africa, Africa south of the Sahara Desert, the Muslim countries of North Africa, that is now the most evangelical part of the world. Sub-Saharan Africa now has 180 million evangelical believers. That's twice the number in North America, the United States and Canada. And the church is growing faster there than any other part of the world. 20,000 a day coming to Christ in North America. Or go to Spanish and Portuguese-speaking Latin America, where there are now over 90 million evangelical believers, almost as many as in North America. And the church growing there at the rate of 10,000 a day. Or go to parts of Asia, to China, uh, the communist government in China admits to there being 30 million Christians in China. But unofficial estimates are as many as 120 million believers in China. This communist country where there is still tremendous persecution of the church in parts of China. And yet in other parts of the China, the church is growing rapidly. There are theological seminaries. There are Bibles being published. It's been said that everything that you hear about the church in China is true someplace in China where there are open doors and there are closed doors and the gospel is growing and the gospel is suppressed, it's all through in China. The gospel has gone out phenomenally in parts of the world where back in 1910, the gospel had only begun to penetrate. But where there was great hope that the gospel would go out, back in 1910, they thought that the Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist parts of the world were about to give way and about to crumble in the face of gospel advance. But where there was great hope, there the gospel still needs to penetrate. Because where it's the gospel is being resisted, it's being resisted very, very harshly and very, very emphatically. Today around the world there are still between 1.6 and 1.8 billion people who have yet to hear a witness about Jesus Christ. In fact, 87% of all Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists in the world, 87%, do not personally know 
a born-again Christian. Massive amounts of the world where there are still unreached peoples. Take, for example, the Ganges River Valley in North India, where there are today almost 400 million people, and less than 1% of all the people are even professing Christians. Some estimate that fewer than a hundredth of a percent are evangelical Christians in that area of North India along the Ganges River Valley. Or take some of the large mega-peoples of the world who are Muslim. For example, the Turkish people. The Turkish people, almost 60 million people, fewer than a hundredth of a percent who are today professing evangelical Christians. Excuse me, fewer than a a tenth of a percent uh, professing evangelical Christians. Or the Baluch people. The Baluch people are a Muslim people in Iran and Pakistan. Ten million Baluch people, fewer than a hundredth of a percent of them professing Christians. Or the Uyghur and Wei people, Muslim peoples of China, over 20 million Muslim peoples of China, again, fewer than a hundredth of a percent of them professing born-again believers in Christ. Massive Muslim and Hindu peoples. Or take the area of Tibet, an area which China claims, which is twice the size of the state of Texas. Uh, As of the last clear-cut count, there were only two congregations of believers in Jesus Christ in all of Tibet. Massive parts of the world that still need to be reached with the gospel. And not only are these areas unreached, but these great world religions of Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism have in many cases had a missionary revival of their own, where they are now aggressively trying to reach out and spread their own faiths around the world. Uh, perhaps you have heard of uh, the New Age movement, very popular in parts of North America, which really is just Hindu philosophy being popularized and spread to many peoples around the world. Muslim petrodollars finance the building of mosques from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia to Akron, Ohio in the United States. Every time we fill up our cars with gas, whether it's the United States or Bahamas, we are actively supporting Muslim missionaries because a percentage of every barrel of oil that comes out of the Middle East goes to finance the building of mosques and education for people who will come and become Muslim. Marsh and I remember when we were in Ethiopia seeing long lines of people waiting up outside the Saudi Arabian embassy with the promise of education and jobs only for those who are Muslims. So for very poor Ethiopians, it was a great temptation to become a Muslim so you could go to Saudi Arabia and get a good job or get education in a good school. And that's financed by Arab petrodollars. Or the efforts of Buddhism, which are sometimes less prominent, but we hear of internationally well-known actors or journalists who say that they have converted to Buddhism because it's the coolest religion. So the great religions of the world are an evangelistic uh, revival of their own. And in some places, these religions have turned even more hostile than before to Christian faith. We've all heard about persecution of, in certain parts of the world of Muslims against Christians. Uh, just these last two weeks, I've gotten emails from a former student of mine in Ethiopia who talks about the burning of churches in western Ethiopia just these past couple weeks. Over 50 churches burned, uh, as many as 5,000 Christians who are now homeless in western Ethiopia. Uh, because of Muslims who have uh, been prompted and urged to attack uh, Christians. Um, We hear about reconversion squads in parts of India, where uh, villages that have been either tribal or low-caste or non-caste 
peoples have become Christians and Hindu reconversion squads will come in and at the threat of extreme violence force the village to reconvert publicly to Hinduism. There is official freedom of religion throughout India and yet in many parts of that country the Hindus are so strong politically and so strong locally that uh, the Hindu reconversion squads are given a great deal of freedom. Uh, I recently read an article from an Indian newspaper that purported to be an expose that said that Western missions coming to Ethiopia was entirely an American plot only sent to dominate India politically and telling Indians that they should not become Christians because if they did, they were just becoming uh, subservient to American international political whims. And so there are massive efforts, not only for re-evangelism and reconversion from Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, but in some case, very violent. Now, this is the state of the world we which, with which, in which we live. Tremendous growth of the church, tremendous expansion around the church, and yet still areas yet to be reached, areas that are difficult to penetrate. Now, what's God's plan? How does God want us to respond to reach some of these most difficult parts of the world? And how do we respond to the great movement of the gospel in places like Africa and Asia and Latin America as the church has spread and expanded? There is a passage of scripture that I think gives us a model for what God wants us to do, given the way the world is today. And if you have your Bible, I want you to take it and turn and open to Romans chapter 15. As we glance at part of the Apostle Paul's missionary strategy for reaching his world and his day, And from his strategy, we can pick up some important clues on how God wants us to respond. In Romans 15, Paul is talking about the completion of his ministry in the eastern Mediterranean. Now, I want you to picture a giant map up here, okay? Uh, In verses 17 down to 22, he says, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of God from Jerusalem around to Illyricum. Now that's, you know where Jerusalem is roughly. Illyricum is up the border of what is today Greece and Serbia, or Greece and Macedonia. Picture a map over here on this side. And if uh, right down there where the trumpet is, if that was Jerusalem, Paul is saying, I have fully proclaimed the gospel all the way around right up here to where the stage is, right up here to where the pulpit is. He's, He's proclaimed the gospel so that the church has been planted in all of the key centers. And now the believers themselves in that area are carrying the gospel within their own communities. They're they're sharing their faith with their neighbors. And Paul has said, um, not everybody has heard the gospel. Not everybody is a Christian here in these areas. But enough have heard the gospel so that the church is planted there. And I can rest confident. All the way around to Illyricum. Now Paul himself was writing the book of Romans from the city of Corinth. So let's make the podium right here, Corinth. And Paul says, I fully proclaim the gospel right up to this area and all of the area north and around there. But now, verse 23, he says, I've got a new plan. Now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, because he's preached and the church is planted, and since I've been longing for many years to see you, who is he writing to? Christians in Rome. I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Drop down to verse 28. So after I've completed this task, he's taking some money back to the church in Jerusalem, and have made sure they have received this fruit, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. 
Now, where is Paul going to eventually? What's his final destination? Spain. Now, let's say that Spain is right over there where the piano is, okay? Now, Paul has to get all the way over to Spain. And to do that, he needs a new base of operations. Spain is a long way from where Paul has ministered here in the Eastern Mediterranean. His base church for the Eastern Mediterranean. Did anybody know what Paul's home church, his base church was for the Eastern Mediterranean? It was the town of Antioch and the church in Antioch. Kind of right over here by the saxophone, all right? The saxophone's Antioch. And Paul has found that a great base for reaching the Eastern Mediterranean. But from, from the saxophone to the piano, from Antioch to Spain, well, it could take a full year of journey. It would be very, very inconvenient to go back and forth. Furthermore, Spain is very, very different from the Eastern Mediterranean where Paul was born and grew up. Spain is a Latinized province. As far as we know, Paul, we don't even know if he spoke Latin. We know he spoke Aramaic and Hebrew and Greek. But did he speak Latin? We don't know. It's very different culturally. It's very different linguistically. It's far away from his home base. What does Paul need? He needs a new home base. And so in verse 24, he says to the Romans, I hope to visit you while passing through and have you English says, in my translation, assist you, assist me on my journey there. Now that seems very innocent, what Paul is asking, but he's doing more than asking for a covered dish dinner, a, a word of prayer, and a pat on the back. This phrase, assist me on my journey there, is actually one word in the original language. And that word is used nine times in the New Testament. And every time it's used, it's used for a partnership between a church and a missionary. Paul is asking for the church in Rome. And let's say Rome is right here where the flutes were playing, okay? Paul is saying, I need a new forward base to reach Spain. And Roman church, I see you as the perfect forward base. You're close geographically and you're close culturally. Of course, Rome was the origin of Latin. It was the origin of the Roman Latin culture that had penetrated and was impacting Spain. This word, assist me on my journey there, is used to describe financial help, traveling partners, translators, um, all kinds of things, food, anything that the person might need. See, Paul is saying to this Roman church, which was a younger church, a church he had not planted, but a church that he knew about, he's saying, I need a new partner, and I need someone who can help me to get to an area that's far away from me, but an area that is close culturally and geographically to where I'm going. Now, I find this a tremendous model for what God wants from the church today. The church is planted around the world. The church is in just about every country. There are people and ethnic groups that are close to most of these unreached peoples. There are Believers in India, close to the unreached peoples of northern India. There are believers in China, close to the unreached peoples of Tibet and western China. There are believers in the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia, close to the unreached peoples in the Middle East. There are peoples close, ethnically, culturally, and geographically, to all of these unreached peoples around the world. What God is calling for, I believe, from the church today, is what I call a coalition for mission. He's saying to the church, I don't want you to do this on your own. You need to be partners in mission with the church around the world. You need to link arms and link hands with the church around the world and together be working to reach out 
and carry the gospel to the places that are unreached. Let me give you some examples of coalition for mission around the world and what God is doing and what I believe He's calling for us to do as a result. Most of you know the country of Korea is now, South Korea is now a very Christian country. But not only are they very Christian, but they are sending out many, many Christian missionaries. That Korea today is the second largest missionary sending country in the world after the United States. Almost 20,000 Koreans now being sent out. And they're sending out missionaries faster than the United States. They have as a goal to eventually catch up to the U.S. One small little country in terms of the total number of missionaries they have sent out. A few years ago, I saw a video of a Korean pastor who was training chaplains for the Russian army. Now stop and let that sink, sink, in, sink in for just a minute. If, if a few years ago, before uh, all of the changes in Russia, I had told you that a Korean pastor was training chaplains for the Russian army, you would have wanted to know what medication I was taking that was giving me hallucinations like that. You would have said that can't happen, but it's happening right now. Koreans making a vast impact around the world. Well, those Koreans making that impact are looking for partnership. Um, many of them have linked with uh, different mission agencies around the world. But one of the greatest needs in partnership for Koreans is to be able to speak an international language. Most Koreans, as they grow up, learn to speak Korean. And because Korea is a singular society, they don't need to learn any other international language. They may take a course in English or Chinese in school, but they don't speak it well. Korean missionaries that go out are often looking to learn and improve their English so that they can have an international language as they go as missionaries. There are missionary English language schools in Korea, and they are often looking for people who will come and will go there for short-term or long-term missions and simply speak English and help Koreans learn English better. Anybody here qualify? Anybody here speak English? Well, if you don't, you're not understanding what I'm saying. So, thank you. Yes, we have a lot of English. Everybody here is an English speaker. And that's the kind of person that many of these Koreans are looking for, just to be a partner with them in mission. Help them improve and grow in their English language so they can be more effective in their own cross-cultural missionary activity. Or, take what's happening in the country of China. How many of you have heard of the Back to Jerusalem movement? Raise your hand if you have heard of that. Okay, it looks like maybe about uh, 10 or 15 of you. Let me explain it very quickly. Um, many of us know, of course, the church in China has grown very, very strong, and they've caught a missionary vision. Some of the Chinese church leaders describe their vision this way. They say that when the gospel first spread, it spread primarily westward. Now, it did go eastward, but they envision it going westward from Jerusalem to Europe, and then westward from Europe to North America, and then westward from North America to China. And now, these Chinese church leaders say, we want to raise up missionaries to continue carrying the gospel westward from China, between China and Jerusalem, where the gospel first went out. Now, the areas between China and Jerusalem are some of those most unreached parts of the world. Western China, Central Asia, they envision pushing down into South Asia, into India, Pakistan, Iran, Iraq, Turkey, right up to where Jerusalem is. They say, we want to carry the gospel back to Jerusalem, and they're calling for raising up as many as 100,000 Chinese missionaries to carry the gospel back to Jerusalem. As they propel the gospel back, they are now training those missionaries. 
And the courses they are having teaching the missionaries are courses we don't see in too many Bible colleges and seminaries. Not only do they teach them evangelism and discipleship, but they teach things like how to share the gospel in the back of a police cruiser. How to plant a church in prison. How to jump out of the second story of a building without hurting yourself. Why do Chinese missionaries need to learn those things? Well, they know they're going into tough areas where they'll be persecuted. Many of them expect to be imprisoned for their faith. But they expect that in prison they can plant churches, they can share the gospel. They expect that they may have to run every now and then. But they say that God has allowed communism in China for the past 50, 60 years specifically to prepare them to carry the gospel to the toughest parts of the world. Now, the Chinese church is asking for one thing from the church around the world. What do you suppose they're asking for? Prayer. Not asking for money. They say, we don't want your money. We can do this. But we do need your prayer. Now, if God is raising up thousands and thousands of Chinese missionaries and they're going through rigorous training and they have a vision to go into the toughest parts of the world, how can we not at least pray for them? How can we not make that a matter of prayer in our daily lives, maybe, maybe once a week at least? Pray for the Back to Jerusalem movement. Pray that God will strengthen them and train them and, and give them perseverance and give them open doors and prepare Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist hearts for the gospel and that they will hear the gospel and the church will be planted. planted. Let's pray for the Back to Jerusalem. That's the way we can partner. It's part of the coalition for mission, partnering with the Chinese church as they carry the gospel back to Jerusalem. Several years ago, I was talking with a church and mission leader from the little African country of Liberia. Now, Liberia is on the west coast of Africa. In the 1990s and early 2000s, it was torn apart by a brutal civil war. Most of the Western missionaries had to leave, and only a few have been able to return since that time. But, in the absence of the Westerners, this Liberian has started a Liberian mission agency where he is now trained and equipped and sending out excuse me, Liberian missionaries to every part of the country of Liberia and even outside of Liberia to other Muslim West African countries like Guinea. Now, when I talked to him, it was so exciting to hear his vision. But he said, oh, we need so many more workers. I said, do you still need Western workers? Could you use missionaries from the United States or Canada or England or the Bahamas? He said, oh, absolutely, absolutely. But we need Western missionaries, missionaries from outside, he said. They have to have one important qualification. They must come with a humble spirit. They must not come and think that that uh, because they're coming to this land of Liberia, that they have much to teach us and nothing to learn. They must go with a, come with a learning spirit. They must come ready to work side by side and be partners with the Liberians. They must come ready to work under Liberian leadership. They must come with a humble spirit ready to join the national church as it reaches out. So God is looking for partners, but partners that will still go out as missionaries but those who will go out as missionaries ready to be underneath the church and side by side with the church around the world. One more set of stories. This one from the country Marcia and I know best, the country of Ethiopia. Back in the year 2000, a team of eight Ethiopian missionaries went from Ethiopia to the country of Pakistan in South Asia to serve as missionaries. 
Now, they had gone there because leaders of the Pakistani church had met with leaders of the Ethiopian church and several other countries and had talked about reaching Muslims. And the Pakistani leaders were impressed that these Ethiopians had been able to share the gospel and plant the church in Muslim communities in Ethiopia. So the Pakistanis said, please, can you send some missionaries to work with our Pakistani evangelists? The Ethiopians said, sure. So this team of eight Ethiopians went to Pakistan. And when they entered Pakistan, before they began their missionary work, a Pakistani evangelist was briefing them and kind of orienting them to doing evangelistic work in Pakistan. And he said, now when you're here in Pakistan and you go to a village, you can't preach the gospel openly like you did in Ethiopia. And the Ethiopian said, why? What will happen if we preach the gospel openly? The Pakistani evangelist said, well, they'll throw you into jail. The Ethiopians all looked at each other and they said, well, we've all already been in jail for our faith back during the communist period in Ethiopia. It's not a big deal. Come on, let's get going. We have work to do. Two of the Ethiopian missionaries went into a Pakistani village and began sharing the gospel in one of the marketplaces. And they were there for part of the day. And after some time, the Pakistani policeman came over and said, excuse me, sirs, would you come with me? This Pakistani policeman took these two Ethiopians in to see the mayor of the, of the village. And uh, when he brought him in, the mayor said, uh, you folks are clearly not from here. Uh, you've come from Africa. I can see that. Where are you? I mean, who are you? Where have you come from? And what are you doing here in our village? So the Ethiopian missionary said, well, we are from Ethiopia. And we have come here as missionaries to share the gospel of Jesus here in your village. The mayor thought about that for a minute. He said, well, you know, we are a Muslim village, but in Islam we have a tradition. Uh, our tradition is that back when Muhammad fled from Mecca to Medina, which would be in the 600s, that he sent a hundred of his followers to Ethiopia, where they were welcomed by the Ethiopian king and protected. And by the way, that tradition is historical. That really did happen. So the mayor went on to say, so our tradition tells us that if we should ever meet Ethiopians, and I've never met any Ethiopians before now, but if we should ever meet Ethiopians, we should welcome them and protect them. So you are welcome in our village, and you may use our town hall to hold meetings if you like. Now, if uh, Martin or I turned up in that village, we probably wouldn't be welcomed in the same way. But these Ethiopians were welcome. You see, new partnership for mission. Now, how do you suppose those Ethiopians got from Ethiopia to Pakistan? Well, it was a three-way partnership. Out of its poverty, the Ethiopian church was giving for their own missionaries. In fact, they had raised the funds for the missionaries' daily expenses, their food and housing and other daily expenses, was being paid for by the Ethiopian National Church. Out of its poverty, the Pakistani church had raised funds for the missionaries for their internal transportation around Pakistan, their bus fare to get from place to place in Pakistan. But the largest expense, the airfare from Ethiopia to Pakistan, that had been raised to an international project. I keep losing this thing, sorry. That had been raised to an international project, giving from all over the world, from the United States and Europe and many other places, so that the missionaries would have their airfare paid for. An international partnership in which outside churches didn't pay the whole bill, but they paid for strategic needs. Now, these are just some ways that God is calling us to partner in the coalition for mission that he's established. 
And I just want to go through them, review them, because this is how God wants us to respond here at Calvary Bible Church. First of all, God wants us to pray differently for missions. Not just praying for our own missionaries, but praying for the church around the world. He wants each one of us here at Calvary Bible Church to think through the different parts of the world and pray for the church. Pray for those from those countries who are going out with the gospel. Let me recommend a great tool for you. How many of you have heard of the book Operation World? Operation World. Just a handful. That book, Operation World, is the second most important book that every Christian should own after their Bible. It is thick with information that you can pray for for every country in the world and for the larger countries like India and China. It goes through every state or every province and it gives you specific things to pray about. I would encourage you to make that a regular part of your own or your family's spiritual walk. Pray through the countries of the world. If you really are serious about mission, it's a way you can support the Chinese church and many other churches and partner with them in a coalition for mission. That's first. Secondly, God wants all of us to think about what just maybe He wants us to do individually for mission. Perhaps go on a short-term trip or even a long-term trip for mission. But to go with a spirit of partnership and humility, ready to learn and work with people from around the world. We're going to be talking more about this through the week, but God may be laying on some of your hearts right now a passion that He may be calling you to think of going to a different part of the world for a short time or a long time. As you go, go with a submissive and humble spirit, recognizing that God is already there ahead of you, working with the church. God is already there with His Holy Spirit, doing work. And we're not being the ones to take God in most places. We're, God is already there. And the church is usually there. We need to go to be ready to serve side by side with the church. A third and final way that we can respond in this coalition for mission is through strategic giving. Giving that will help equip the church. Sometimes we can give to support evangelists, but I think it's very important that we not give to projects that the outside is doing the whole bit. But to give to projects in which the local churches are also supporting their own evangelists. But we can give strategically to help Wycliffe is a great example, Wycliffe Bible Translators, because they're translating the gospel, the, the New Testament and the Bible in, in many languages around the world, but they realize that they can't just do this with outside missionaries. So now they are training local translators. But it costs money to train those translators. You can give to projects, like Wycliffe's projects, that will equip local translators to be well-equipped to translate the Scriptures. Many other projects you can give to to help support the, the task of local evangelism and missions around the world. God is raising up a coalition for mission. He wants us to be part of it. He wants us to think in creative new ways about how to do missions. Yes, continue to send out our own missionaries. Uh, we have not reached the day where uh, we are no longer necessary to send out missionaries from countries that are Christian, like the Bahamas. But we need to go out with fresh attitudes. We need to give in fresh new ways. And all of us need to be praying for the church around the world. My encouragement to us this evening is that we get behind and we join God's coalition for mission. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for what you're doing around the world. We thank you, Lord, that you have raised up your church in many places around the world. And our prayer, Lord, is that you would continue to use us. Thank you for the privilege of being part of missions around the world. Father, I pray for Calvary Bible. Thank you for the way it has joined hands in a coalition for mission by sending out Bahamian missionaries 
uh, to other places around the Caribbean. But Father, I pray that you will help each of us to join with what you're doing in even more extended places. May we catch a vision for them. May we pray for them. May we give to them. And Father, I pray as a result that you will continue to penetrate the most difficult places around the world with your coalition for mission. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank <laughs> you.